One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I didn't even tell my mom, couldn't even see her in the face saying goodbye. I'd rather die back at home than putting my kid through that risk. The smuggler found out that I got someone helping me. He was about to kill me. They start pouring petrol in our water so we don't drink the water very quickly and you can only taste it to just stay alive. We were like, we're really thirsty, like, what are we supposed to do? And then we see a lot of people that's just left behind. We saw so many bodies and skeletons. It was manic because in the middle of the sea, they ran out of petrol and they don't know what to do. And all of a sudden, our boat was just smashed really? to the water. Like everything is just upside down. In that moment, I don't know what I was thinking. That still affects me because I can just imagine what the parents feel. Welcome back to Working Hard, Hardly Working. This is a slightly different episode and I want you to listen to it. <laughs> I know that kind of goes without saying because it's my podcast, but we usually speak on this podcast a lot about business and careers and people's work. And I think it's important that in the aim of improving ourselves and of getting to become better people in any way, whether that's in our career, in our work, in our, you know, humanity, any of these things, it's really, 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 really important to get uncomfortable when listening to things that matter. And I think that in the UK especially, or wherever you're listening to this from, I assume there's probably something quite similar, we probably go out of our way not to listen to stories that will make us feel uncomfortable or, or listen to stories that will make us feel like we're potentially a problem as, or part of a bigger problem. You'll know we spoke to Jazz O'Hara a few episodes ago um, about her work with refugees from Calais to her kind of work and activism now. And we spoke then about her brother, Mez. And Mez really, really kindly accepted the offer to come onto the podcast today to tell the story of his year-long journey escaping in the night from Eritrea all the way to the UK. And I think, you know, we have these preconceptions of why doesn't a refugee go via the legal route when I think you'll hear from, you'll hear from Meza's story just how ridiculous that question is. And we look at what's happened with Ukraine and rightly so, we've offered a huge amount of help and all of this. And yet refugees like Mez have to go under trains, survive capsizing in a boat with 700 people across the Mediterranean Sea after months and months of journeying without water and all of these kind of things. And the fact that we still at any point think that this might be a choice or that refugees are coming here to steal our jobs or our money or take our free healthcare or whatever, whatever like this narrative that's being peddled is. I really, 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 really would like you to listen to this 
not only because I think it's important, but also because it is a truly unbelievable story. I was transfixed for the entire time and I am not a concentrator. I find it very hard to focus on things and I could not look away and stop listening to Mez's story. This is a first-hand story of a year escaping from Eritrea, from persecution and from probably sure death in certain circumstances to coming to the UK. The story is unbelievable. Mez is unbelievable. And I'm really excited for you to listen to this. And I really, really hope that you give this as much time and thought as you would an episode with a business leader. So have a listen. It's an unbelievable story. And I think you're really going to be blown away by the reality of this situation. Today I introduce you to Mez, a young, courageous refugee with an extraordinary story. When he was just 13 years old, Mez fled his home in Eritrea to escape some of the worst human rights conditions in the world, including forced military conscription and widespread persecution, starting a perilous journey as a child refugee across the world. For an entire year, Mez experienced the chaos and terror of refugee camps, experiencing extreme and treacherous conditions that would leave him scared and struggling to get enough to eat. The physical environment was equally as dangerous, almost killing him on multiple occasions, from almost starving while travelling across the Sahara Desert, to surviving a boat capsize in the Mediterranean Sea, to hiding underneath a Eurotunnel train to get to the UK. Since arriving safely in the UK with just the clothes on his back, Mezit's life has completely transformed for the better. Fostered by the family of Jazz O'Hara, who we heard speak about her work with refugees, Mez has gone on to remarkably learn English, pass his GCSEs, and inspire others with his story. Now, Mez aspires to follow his dreams of becoming a mechanic while still continuing to raise awareness of the life, death, and limbo of the refugee crisis. I know a little bit about your story from when I spoke with Jazz and also what you've told me and everything. I'd love for people to be able to get a bit of context on your story and where you've come from and your journey. So you left Eritrea at 13, is that right? right? Yeah. And if you don't mind me asking, what was life like there before you left? I had great family, brothers and sisters. Great, like, I had perfect life. I was working, I was studying, had a lot of friends. So I had no problem leaving there in my country. It was, yeah, I, I don't remember having bad memories in stuff from back at home in terms of like when I was young but when you grow up that's when the consequences starts to happen and that you don't want to be a part of so yeah when I was little from very young age yeah had a loving family sisters and school and everything it was yeah it was just perfect for me and how did you come to the decision to leave and how did that end up happening so when you start to grow up and be a bit older, 14, 15 years old, you see uh, all your friends going somewhere and you don't really know about. And when you ask your parents, for example, like, oh, he's gone somewhere, he's come back, but they don't really tell you where they're gone. And um, sometimes if you're like, what's, what's actually happening? Like, where's all my friend going? Because they, maybe they didn't come to school for like a week or so, and then they're being snitched on and then they leave. And you start to question it. And then one time, my older brother got caught by the military service and got tucked away. And um, 
my dad was actually never home as well. He comes um, after a few months, see us and go back to military service and stuff like that. So for us from very young age, it's very hard to say to your mom, like, where's my dad? Yeah. Like, because all over your neighbors and stuff, the whole community have the same thing. So you right. don't see it as a problem or you don't see it like his dad is here. My dad is not here because everyone is in there. But when they took my brother and I was like, where is he? Like, where did he go? And stuff like I was asking my mom a lot of questions and she couldn't answer me and stuff like that. And then I realized like something's happening, like they're going somewhere, but they're not telling us. And then all of a sudden my brother got back and then he started telling me like, this is where we've been, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, this is, this is crazy. Then they put that idea on your head saying like, everyone have to do it. And then you think like, okay, if everyone have to do it, I have to do it as well. But then I was studying and stuff like that. So I wasn't ready to actually leave because I was 13 and, um, but I can see it happening in the future. Then when my brother told me, and then when, it, as soon as he told me, and then he got taken away again. So my brother was there, my dad was there. Everyone was just leaving, leaving, leaving. I was like, holy shit. And then they were coming to our city every now and then taking a lot of young teenagers with them and they don't re you don't really see them. And after a while, I was like, they're going to take us, you know? So we used to do, me and my two friends, we sit together, like we do everything together. And then sometimes when they come to the town, we run away. And then when they leave, we come back. And we used to do that quite often, like a lot of times. And then one day we was like, let's just run away. They came to our town and then we ran away and then we didn't think of coming back. So we just left, left her, our city and then we arrived to the next city and then we were like, do you want to come back? Do you want to go back? Because we tried, we were regretting it because I didn't want to leave because mm -hmm. my mom was pregnant when I left and I didn't want to leave her alone because I was kind of the, I don't want to say the father figure, but like I was yeah. there to help everyone that was at home because both my brother and my dad are not really home. So we didn't even know where we, go, where we were going. And then he was like, let's just try to cross to Ethiopia then. And then we tried to cross it. It took us about three days to get there. We were walking because in, in Eritrea, you have to have um, a little paper to go from city to right. city. It's not like in here, for example, we came here from Kent to here with no problem. You yeah. don't have to show a paper. You don't have to show anything. But they have a border, for example, like from my city to the next city, you have to show a paper to pass. Mm -hmm. And then same, 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 but so we had to walk about three days. And then all of a sudden we arrived in Ethiopia and then it was like, oh, you're way too young. You can't, you can't do this, blah, blah, blah. but we, we decided we were there already. The Ethiopian officials were saying you're too young to leave. Is that right? Yeah. So when we arrived there, the actual, the military, um, they were there in the board, the Ethiopian board, board uh, um, military, uh, they were there and they were saying like, you're way too young. Where are you going to go? Like, where are you thinking of going? And you're like, I don't know. We just, we just left, so we can't go back. And then obviously they put us in a van and then took us to a camp called Hentats. And all of a sudden, everyone from back at home was in the fucking camp. Really? Yeah. And so lots of other people had done what you'd done. They Yeah, but left. We, yeah, we didn't know. Yeah. We had no idea. And then every, like friend that, that we used to have in school and everything, they were there. 
Mm. And we were so baffled to even see. <laughs> yeah. And we were like, what? When did he leave? Like, what happened? How did he leave? And obviously they have completely different stories and stuff like that. But we couldn't believe it at all. Yeah. And we didn't even know there was a camp. The camp was huge. Mm. And then we started seeing very young kids, a lot of women, a lot of dads that we used to know. We're thinking that they're in the military service, but they're not. And we saw them and it was like, yeah, how did he come? And then we, start, we talked about them, like we just left because we couldn't handle it anymore. They would just keep happening regularly. We couldn't stay. So yeah, we arrived in uh, the camp and in the camp, you can't really do much either. There's not, mm. it's a camp. They look after you, like they just give you a coupon of like food for the month and stuff, but mm-hmm. we didn't want to be there either. Of course. So, and the thing is like, we, it's been almost like a week and a half or two without telling our parents where we were. Right. So they've been worried sick. Were they, were you in contact with your parents we, about? So from um, Eritrea and Ethiopia, there's no phone line. Right. So you can't call your parents, say like, I'm here. It's not like in here, like you have all phone contacts. Yeah. So like you can contact your parents or friends anytime you want. It's not like that. So yeah. you don't, yeah, I didn't call them for almost two weeks to let them know where I am. But we couldn't go anywhere either because you have to pay a lot of money to the smugglers to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But we had no choice. So we stayed there for a little bit longer. And again, everyone that we know from back home were going to Sudan and stuff like that. So, so it's like, okay, we go with the Isgis well then. Like, mm-hmm. what do we have to lose? We're staying here. We're not going to do anything. And our parents are getting very worried. Um, we can imagine they don't have any kind of idea where we were. Yeah. So we decided uh, to just tag along with the boys that they were leaving to Sudan. And that took us about a week uh, from Ethiopia to Sudan. And they tell you to have to pay this much money. And how were you transported? So the transporters was really um, difficult. We didn't understand. So we thought it's gonna just going to be like in a minivan or something and yeah. just take us like from that place to Sudan quite easy. But they put us in pickup truck right. where everyone have to stay in the back and they've been driven about 30 something people in there. Wow. So you literally, you sit. So when, we, when you sit, your legs hang up from the pickup truck. Right. And the girls and the stuff have to be in the middle because yeah. you have to protect them and stuff. Um, we traveled like that for a week. And the thing is like, we don't know where we're going. We don't really eat. They give you like a, a bottle of water and stuff like that. And then you have to wait for a long time to get even that. So it was very, very hard journey because we didn't expect it. Yeah. If you, if someone tells you it's going to be very hard, you actually mm. could be prepared and stuff for like that. But we didn't get prepared. We stayed there for a week and a half or something. And then we just left without knowing anything. Like to even imagine it now, I can never even yeah. do it. Like I can't bring myself to do it. Like, why did I do it? Why couldn't just stay there and find a way to call my parents and stuff? Well, we were too young. We didn't care about anything else. We just yeah. wanted to follow the people that were, that were going. And um, then we arrived. They put us in prison. So we had to, we had to pay the money to go out from the prison. The smugglers put you in prison. Yeah. So they take you from Ethiopia to some place called the Mahajer, which is next to the Sudan. Mm-hmm. And then when you pay from that, they take you to Khartoum. So they put you in a prison with hundreds and hundreds of people there. 
they yeah. build massive kind of warehouse looking building and they just chuck you in there. You don't have a place to sleep, you don't really eat, you don't shower. It's manic. Like, it's, you could, <laughs> even I didn't even put my animals, I didn't even treat my animals like yeah, that. Yeah. Like, it was just crazy. But I was lucky, so I called my mum and as soon as she heard my voice, she literally just fainted. She couldn't speak to me. And then all of a sudden, my younger brother picked up the phone and I was like, you need to tell or get the neighbours, tell them that I'm here and give me a missed call when she gets up. The thing is, like, you only have like a couple of, like, you can only speak like what you need. So yeah. you can just call your mum, say like, I need 70 grand and hang out the phone. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm here, I'm safe, I need 70 grand to pay this person. And then if they say, yeah, yeah. have to wait. If What's that conversion, do you know, in... So that pounds? was in Eritrea, so in here it was like 1,500 or right, something, yeah. or 2,000. So very, very expensive. Yeah, <laughs> for, for them it was mad. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, how could she get that money? Like, my dad wasn't there, my brother wasn't there, they, they didn't have that money at all. But uh, they, didn't, they, they didn't tell you the money that you had to pay from that to that as well. Wow, so they just so say, well, because you once just, you're in the prison, you've got to get out, haven't you? You have to pay it, or we have to sell you to someone else. Right. Where? Right. When you'd spoken to your brother before, in terms of like when he came back and kind of told you about where he'd been taken, do you mind saying anything about what he said, like what he told you would these people would take you for? So, yeah, the... He told me briefly because he mm -hmm. didn't want me to know much about it. Of course. Um, I understand it now, but back then I didn't understand it at all. Yeah. But he gave me some kind of an idea of what's going to happen. So he told me, like, they take you from here and they put you underground prison for two, three weeks. And you eat once a day. Mm -hmm. And you, go, you only go out, you, yeah, you have your toilet and everything in there so it's like smells like crazy there uh, you don't shower you don't do anything and then when they have when they decide that you go out and then you do your military service right um for a few months you go out and you do that come back to prison again and if you say anything or make any kind of like says anything about the government or mm -hmm. anything about the prisoners you don't know who you're in prison with like you don't know so you i can be with you for example mm -hmm. and i don't trust you mm -hmm. because i can say something to you and the next thing i will be out and being yeah. beaten up to death so he, he said that to me and i was like does that happen to everyone and he was like kind of what's the aim of the military service that they're making you do so for them it's like the idea of like to keep people where they are listen to the government what it says right. and the government that's it like you don't have any kind of choice you don't have human rights freedom of speech can't do anything can't travel anywhere it's just listen to us and that's it so to every country well, not every country but in Eritrea you have to do your military service for one year and a half so that's that's usual for a lot of different countries because they have to do that to mm. be able to do something I don't know but they have that rule yeah but the way they do it is completely lie. When mm -hmm. you go in it, you don't come out. Mm -hmm. Right. So what they say to you, like, you can you only do it for one year and a half and then you do your own thing. But when you go in it, my dad's been yeah. there for years. 
and other lot of young people has been there for three, four years without having even seen their parents. And they come in, see their parents for a week or so, they have to go back. But like, they have done it, so why are they going back? So it was a lot of questions that unanswered. Yeah. And I didn't understand it at all. And did you ever talk to your brother about the fact that you were considering running away or because it was quite impromptu? You can never say that to yeah. anyone around you. Really? Never. You can't even tell. I I didn't even tell my mum yeah. when I left. I didn't, I couldn't even see her in the face saying goodbye. I just left because I, well, for me, I just ran away. But you can never say to your yeah. mum or anyone around you unless you like my friends, like we left three of us. You don't really trust um, people around you. You can say yeah. something about them and then the next thing you'll be gone. So... It's a lot of propaganda thing that guys just goes around and snitching people in, you go yeah. to prison and then you have to pay a lot of money sometimes to come out or you just go in and never come out. So sometimes they do it for the money. So for my, my, for my brother, he paid a lot of money to come out, but he gone in anyway. Yeah. So there's no point. But when he told me that kind of story, I was like, okay, yeah. But then he went anyway, so. And so... From when you were in Sudan and you'd called your mum to ask for the money to release, what happened after that point? She didn't speak to me at, at first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my na- the neighbour came in and then she spoke to me and I told her what actually happened and I had to pay a lot of money for it. And then she went to explain to my mum and obviously my mum called my dad. And he came home and he just raised money from all different families and stuff like that. And he paid for me. It was just me and my, one of my friends. The other friend didn't want to come with us in, in first to Sudan. So it was just me and him. Um, I didn't want to go out first because uh, I didn't want to leave my friend behind. I stayed with uh, him, but he had a very difficult upbringing as well because his dad never was home. His mom didn't really have work. Um, his family didn't want to help either. So we stayed in that for at least two months in that prison. And then he finally paid. And then we thought when we go to Khartoum, which is the capital city of Sudan, mm-hmm. and we can have some place to sleep or stay. And they literally just dumped us in the middle of really? the city. And we couldn't speak the language. Don't know what we're doing. Too young boys that just been down in the middle of the city and we were like what are we supposed to do here we don't know where to do we don't know where to go and uh, we decided we have to call the smuggler again because either we have to go back to that prison where we were or he can find us someplace then he said "Um, I've got a place in Khartoum where you can stay but if you stay with me you have to go to Libya with me as well you're to not, Libya. Yeah, you're not going to live free on my place. And we're like, yeah, we take that because we don't have anywhere to go. And then from then I start to call my mom and explain to her what had happened. And she was very angry with me because, mm-hmm. like, it doesn't matter. I was pregnant. I needed someone to stay yeah. here with me, bloody blah, blah, blah. I had to do it. And, um, yeah, but then she starts saying to me, like, okay, you can call your uncle and maybe he will help you and stuff like that. My uncle was in South Africa or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, I called him and he was actually really good. And he helped me a lot um, to pay 
and stuff. He sent me some money when I was in Sudan, start living um, in Sudan. And me and my friend were together for a little while. And I stayed in Sudan for about seven months. And then everyone was leaving again because he had enough people. And we, because we stayed with him, all the people that were with him in that place had to go and have to pay the money as well. And uh, we were like, but we don't have the money. Like, mm. And then he was like, well, you need to leave then. You need to go somewhere. And I kind of relied on my uncle for a bit and saying like, okay, we have to rent a place now because the smuggler kicked us out. Then the smuggler found out that I got someone helping me. Right. He was about to kill me and he was like, you cannot lie to me, I'm helping you. Like, yeah. You cannot do this. And then I ran away from that as well. Mm -hmm. And he, I heard he was looking after me for months and months. Really? Yeah, because I stayed there for four or five months without paying anything. And I was getting fed and everything provided there, living nicely without doing anything. Um, but then I left anyway, so mm -hmm. and he didn't find me. And we, me and my friends started renting there for a little bit and I decided to go. Uh, and my friend was like, you need to go because I don't have anyone to pay for me. And my uncle was prepared enough. Uh, he wanted me to come to him, but I didn't want that because he was going to uh, Canada anyway, so I didn't have anywhere to be there anyway. Right. So I decided to go to Libya and um, the thing is like when you trying to do this journey, you don't know what had happened in this journey. And I didn't know many people that have crossed it yeah, and they don't tell you what had happened either. So and my uncle mentioned it a little bit for me, like it's very difficult journey, like it's very tough, you can't do it. Like, so just stay there until I find something for you. But and I was like, everyone is leaving, um, I need to go. And he was like, okay, if you say so, you can go. And I, I told my, my best mate and said, you can have all my things in here, I'll go. And then as soon as I go in, I will help you. And we agreed on that. I left. I left with a lot of girls. Lot of, I had, so in our group, we had two pregnant women, mm -hmm. about 10 or something young girls, and a lot of uh, old people, actually, uh, over, 20, uh, over 30 and stuff like that. And we started the journey. and. As soon as we hit the journey, we got stopped. We were in a big lorry, so it, a lot of smugglers sent different people from different places and mm -hmm. they put you in a lorry. And on that lorry were about 110, 120 people. Wow. Everything is in there, so it's very crowded. You don't imagine it to be like that. Yeah. And we didn't imagine that it's going to be a very long journey as well. So, but we started it anyway. We. Travel, we were traveling over the night and we got stopped by the Sudanese police and they were onto the girls. They were stripping them from the beginning. They were going mm. through the hair, they were going through the whole body, thinking that they have hidden some money. And we were like, can we not do something? Yeah. But you can't do anything because they were there with the guns and everything. And then if you move, I say you're dead. So we, we felt 
like hopeless, like mm. just some girls are traveling with you and you can't even help them. You can't do anything to protect them. And then we just, it was, it was like in that first day, it was that it was happening yeah. that the first day and it was like, you go sure that you need to go like, you need to be like, you're sure you can handle all that. This is the first day and it's happening. And it's like, yeah, we, we know a lot of girls that have passed there. So we try our, our, mm. um, our best to pass it as well. And then after that, we traveled for five days or something without anything happened. And then they moved us to some pickup cars, which is faster and efficient to go fast to um, get to the next place. When we got to that place, we thought we were going to, they put like five or 10 people in that pickup truck so we can just go comfortably. But 120 people, they provided about three or four pickup cars. Yeah. And we were like, how is this supposed to fit in here? And they were like, we don't know. Yeah, just put your shit in there. We're going to fit in there. And they literally just, they have a routine how to sit people. So they would just put in this. So they put two um, woods in the middle of the thing. So yeah, they put ropes around it. Right. So you ha when you hang, you don't fall. Wow. Um, and they go, when they start going, they go like fast really? they go about 100 miles per hour wow and if you drop from that you drop yeah, no yeah. one's going to stop for you so we start make so from the group that you put in you don't know the group yeah so some of them will be from sudan some of them from ethiopia some of them from eritrea some of them somalia or anywhere yeah you don't know the people and you can barely speak to like one another right but we start to make a little community within each other and then hold each other Wow. And uh, without that, you can't really survive. So then we used to hold your hands each other so we don't fall. And then if one of us get dizzy or something, he swaps person would to get in the middle or something. Traveling like that for 15 days is unbearable. I can't, yeah, I can't imagine. It is madness. Like you just burn from the heat. Like it is... It's so hot, it's in the middle of the Sahara Desert, you get so hot and we were so confident that our water would last us for the whole journey. We didn't realise it was going to take us 15 days. Yeah. We drank most of, like, most of it within the first four or five days because we didn't yeah. realise it was going to take that long. And we were like, we're really thirsty, like, what are we supposed to do? And... Um, then they start scaring us. So they go around uh, uh, big mountains. Like if you don't sh if you don't shut up, we're gonna drive through that. And then you're gonna if you get in there, you're not gonna come out. We we're gonna come out, but you're gonna die right here. Don't drink too much water, bloody blah, blah. And then the, they see something, and then they drive right to it. And then we see a lot of people that's just left behind. Really? So they say, like, we, for example, I've learned now from hearing from different people's story that they finish the water very quickly and then they make, they make a problem to the drivers and saying, like, we need water, we need water. And they said, okay, we're going to get you water. And sometimes they didn't come back at all. So they just leave them there. So we saw so many scattered bodies and skeletons and a lot of young boys and girls and you can't really stop and 
give them proper burial as well, which that still affects me because I can just imagine what their parents feel. Like I can't imagine how my mum will feel if someone just leave me there. So it was very, very hard to leave them behind. Um, you see, yeah, it was a lot of young people as well have ambition, have um, goal to reach, be safe and happy. But they were gone before they even got to the right place. Um, they do that on purpose because they want to scare us and they want, they want us to be compliant with whatever they say. And uh, we start to realize like, okay, we have to be compliant yeah. to them as well. Um, otherwise, they're just going to leave us in here and we're going to die like the people that we just saw behind. And so we start to be compliant to them, be nice to them and stuff like that. And um, so they start to be like, right with us as well they start pouring a petrol in our water so we had a, a, a lot like you know jerry can mm -hmm. so we had like two three of jerry can they they went and collect them and they put a lot of petrol in them so we don't drink the water very quickly so they pour one um, bottle of water for two people a day and you can only taste it to just stay alive Otherwise, you're just gonna drink it and then gonna drink more, gonna interrupt the flow of the traveling. So they have two weeks to reach the place. Yeah. If they don't reach it, they get some shit from their boss yeah. and stuff like that as well. So they put that box, so they pair you up with people that you were with. And some people just don't care what is in the water, they just drink it. So for the first one or two days, they were doing that and then the other person have to beg for someone's water and then we start to get nice to each other and two weeks is very long time to be able to tra to travel in a Sahara yeah. desert but that felt like it was a whole year yeah that's <laughs> yeah it was it was crazy and then you, you so you traveled all day you stopped at midnight have like a couple of hours sleep and you see a lot of people that actually comes with us and they start to fall, start to like had enough of it and they can't handle it anymore. And we start to look after each other very well. Um, the people that I met there, that's it's the ones that actually got me this strong um, to be able to go on with my life and stuff like that. Because yeah. I can't imagine how people in here would feel if they did that. I think they would be more stronger and they will stuff like that. But when I was at home, I could never, I could mm. never go without eating or without drinking one, one day. Like, but they make you believe that some like brightness behind that. It's, yeah. it's, they make you believe that something there for you is, they make you a very strong person. Um, and I was kind of the youngest apart from two girls that were younger than me, but I was the youngest there, so they were looking after me properly and stuff like that as well. But it was crazy how they survived. We had a child with us and all. We had a child with us that 
he was surviving the whole thing. So when we were knackered, try to sleep, mm. the kid would just come up and been sleeping all day. And then he'd just come to us and then brighten our, our, our day and just um, playing around. And we, he doesn't know where we're going. He doesn't know what's happening, but he's still doing it. Yeah. And when I think about it now, I could never, ever put my child through that. But I don't know. I don't know because they're probably there for his parents. Yeah. He didn't have the choice. But looking back now, I'd rather die back at home than putting my kid through that risk. Yeah. Absolutely. I, yeah, yeah I, I, would do any, I would do anything to keep my child and I to be there. And I think that is just such a stark reminder. So many people's like perception of stereotypes and kind of ideas that we have of the refugee crisis and of refugees in general and all of this. How people can ever think that any of this is a choice and someone leaving somewhere just because, you know, they'd, you know, they'd rather live somewhere else. It just for you to say that you would, you know, you'd rather die than kind of make your children go through what you went through. I mean, it just, it just, I just can't believe that there's this complete misconception. They really don't understand it. They really don't understand it. The way they think about the whole refugee crisis thing is like, we come in here to take your job. Mm. We come in here to... Like you said earlier, free healthcare. Yeah. We come in here for something and something. I had I had healthcare back yeah. at home. I had a job. I had beautiful life back at home. I don't need this shit to be yeah, able yeah, to yeah. live in here. It's such like a high horse point of view where people are just kind of thinking like, oh, well, we're here and we deserve to be here. When you're thinking children who are going to be essentially taken in the night to you know do something for the rest of their lives that they don't want to be doing and if they step out of line will be killed it's just completely inconceivable when you really think about it in terms of like how anyone would truly think that that's just a that that's just a choice it's just so warped the fact that people would think that the UK is so great that people are just wanting to be here it's like because people want to move on holiday it's, it's like not. no like I'm sure you would no. you know you would have loved to stay there. Like, oh, you would have loved to have your life there. Absolutely. The politics and the way that the government is so dictatorship that making you feel like, or making you can't live there. Like, they have more prison than school or university. Mm. How one country can have that? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh it doesn't make sense. They have more underground prison than a school and 
Yeah. And yeah, how can I just, I can't just visit my uncle willingly. I have to have proven paper uh, or something to go mm. to see anyone that family member. Mm. We can't, you can't just go for holiday to other city. Yeah. You can't, it's just you live there, you die there. Yeah. Like, you can't do anything. The way they study it works is bollocks as well. You don't mm. study anything. You don't learn anything. Mm. So 14 years old in here, they're learning, they're doing something fun, they're yeah. growing. And it's, it's just a life that what anyone would want to have. Mm. I said to this to, to just once, like, um, I rather, but in that age, I said, I rather hold pen and learn than hold gun, not knowing anything to do with it. What well, well, mm. the fuck what am I supposed to do holding gun at 15, 16 years old? Yeah. I, and the thing is, you're not even doing anything to be able to go to the military service. You're not yeah. in a war. Yeah. You're not protecting your country. Right. What are you doing there? Yeah. So whenever you go there, you're just sitting there doing nothing. Yeah, and at risk of dying all you, the time. Yeah, you, you, your life is completely ruined. Mm. You're not getting enough pay. Mm. You're not getting any kind of education. You're not getting anything to build yourself or to be someone. You just have to leave with their rules and mm. shit too. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point as well because we often think of needing to needing to show how lives were at risk in order to seek asylum or become a refugee or whatever it might be. And there's also just the fact that actually no one wants to live a life when, of course, where they're at risk of being killed, but also on top of that, you you're allowed to have dreams. You're allowed to want to study and learn things and kind of have have a good time and just live a life where you're not worrying about these things or just being a free human being it doesn't need to always be oh you know i i risked being killed it can also just be like kids should be able to be yeah, kids and like people just, as well that's a good point because like i want someone to live the way i want like for example i want you to live happily Mm. And I want everyone to live happily, do whatever they want to do, and just enjoy life. Yeah. Like, how can I do that when mm. I have all these rules against me? Mm. And I'm not studying. Mm. I'm not doing what I meant to do. I'm, I'm just going to become like a 21 or 25 years old, get married, yeah. have children, not be there for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's the point of that? Yeah, and it's it's so interesting that we think of it with this way it, or the kind of misconceptions about refugees or people seeking asylum, this whole idea of the Western democratic world. Lots of people all the time will be like, do you know what, I don't, there's not really a life for me in this town, X, Y, and Z, so I'm going to go to this city or I'm going to change job and go here and all of this. And it's a we feel like we have the right to make that decision. Yeah. So the fact that we take that and apply that to someone who might be, even if they're not, and obviously you were in many situations, like at risk of being murdered and people around you were and all of this, but also just want, wanting a different life for yourself is such a valid request yeah. and such a valid thing to fight for. And I don't think anyone can argue that... You know, no one makes this journey out of choice. No one makes this journey because they want to. It's so clear based on, you know, what you've said and the reality of the journey as a whole to even get 
you know, even get up to Libya or even in the first few weeks, that would not be done if it wasn't needed to, yeah, you know, needed to be done. The desperation is there. The desperation is there. The, the thing sat in your mind is telling you like, okay, you can't have this in your country, so find it somewhere else. Like, mm. go be someone. Go be yeah. something that you want to be and be happy, like, like free, mm. like, because you don't have that. And that gives you the whole motivation of saying like, okay, I want to be someone. I want to do this. I want to mm. do that. But the way they describe it in here is completely different. They, like I said earlier, they all think that we came here for yeah. so many different reasons and our own choice. Mm. I, if I had a choice, I would never even come. It doesn't, it never crossed my mind to come to the UK in the first place. It never come to my yeah. Not even... It's a very up ourselves view to be like, <laughs> oh, everyone wants to be here. It's like, no, people want to be able to live in a place that they can make a life for themselves, even if it's just about being able to like have the freedom to, to, to work, to study any of these things. It's not that it's so great here that everyone's coming here to, you know, use our this, that yeah. and the other, that we only won the birth lottery to even be born into in the first place. Like, who's to say that I have more right to that free healthcare based on the fact that I literally had no choice in just being born here yeah, and it. versus you like it there's no there's sense no in one, it yeah, there's no, no <laughs> sense in it when you think about it no. at all so yeah it's mad because yeah because you were born in here you think and feel you have all the privilege yeah, mm. and all the right to say and do whatever you want to do but it's, it's not that and how long did it take you to reach libya so they say to us, it usually takes 14 days, but we have reached in, uh, 15, uh, mm -hmm. it, took, it took us 15 days after a very long struggle. Um, but we managed, everyone managed to actually Amazing. survive yeah. and get into the place. We almost lost one person. He, I don't know, he just kind of paralyzed, but he survived. They look after him. They, um, we looked after him very well. And you got back to normal and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. apart from that, everyone got in nice and safely. And after that, we, we thought we were done. And it took us 15 yeah. days. We thought, okay, we're going to Libya. Now we can just stay here for as long as we can and recover. That wasn't the case. The day that we came in, everyone had to pay. So everyone had to pay. Everyone need to leave from this place because apparently the police found out where this place is and you have to go from here. And everyone, of course, said, no, we just arrived. We can't just call and say we need to pay. So straight away they moved us to a very near place and thinking mm -hmm. that it was actually found and there was shooting in the air. They were, like, they were doing crazy stuff to make us scared. And I called my uncle then and I said, yeah, I arrived and uh, you need to pay this money. And he, he was very good. I always said this, if it wasn't for him, I don't know where I would be because he helped me out places that I needed it. And uh, he paid for me very quickly and I came out and people start to come out very quickly as well. And so they have two different warehouses and um, one that have paid and the one that haven't paid. And from when you pay, you go to that place to give you code and stuff. 
and when they get enough people they transfer you to another warehouse um where the people are actually waiting for the boat mm-hmm. so the people that were waiting for us been waiting there for three four months because they didn't have enough people coming in mm-hmm. and we arrived there and we saw the place and it was just how can the people sleep here how can you put people in here we paying our money we put, trying to survive in here they put four five hundred people in one room like it's like four by four room and you don't have space to sleep some like we used to stand up so someone can sleep and one day you get up you sleep really yeah or you sleep really tight to each other or you don't sleep at all you don't eat you eat once a day you don't shower so it was horrible, horrible, horrible for for me. Libya was the worst place I can ever imagine to be. Uh, I could, I could even when I think about it now, it gives me, mm. yeah, I, I, it's horrible. So we stayed there for two months because they didn't have enough people. They apparently they had to raise about six, seven hundred people to put in a boat, and. Um, so they were getting a lot of people coming in and some people had to pay, the ones that paid, they got out and they come in, they got out. We stayed doing that for very, it, it was too long. It was too long mm. and then we start to make complaints and stuff. We need to have, we need to shower, we need to, yeah, yeah we, we can't live like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the actual smuggler came in and then it's like, we're living today, we're living tomorrow, we're living today, we're living tomorrow. And then after a very long time, he got the people that he needed and then he's like okay i'm gonna put you in the boat now he put us in the boat and the boat was very small boat really? he's not even a boat it's just the the ones that they just made right there like really? it was this shitty little boat they can't even hold 10 people let alone they put 300 po- uh, people in the top 300 people in the, in the bottom it was kind of double decker boat so 700 people, 800 people in one boat. None of us can swim in the shit as well. Yeah. Like none of us in the whole boat, none of us can swim. Yeah. They know that as well. And then he let us go. He said, don't move from the place that we sit you. And then hopefully you're going. It's not guaranteed. But hopefully, hopefully you're going. We left that day and then we got caught, got sent back and to the... See, and then you got off, uh, so we got into the prison, the Libyan prison, mm-hmm. and then he got us from that same day. He was very good smuggling in a way that he doesn't put you in other people's prison. So right. if you get into the other people in Libyan prison, for example, yeah. you, you kind of die. It's no hope for you. That's it. Yeah. You're gone. So he apparently he paid them a lot of money and then he took us out from there. And then we had to stay for a very long time again that he can get the boat back or something mm. and then he got the boat back and then he sent us and then he did the same thing put the same amount of people in there so he put us about 10 or 11 o'clock in the evening mm-hmm. it was pitch black you can't see anything mm-hmm. you just they just put you in the place that you're supposed to sit mm-hmm. and there you go and is it a motorized boat that they're driving so the, yeah, it's it's motor. So, yeah, for us didn't happen. They mm-hmm. had enough petrol, but for some people, it was manic because in the middle of the sea, they ran out of petrol, mm-hmm. 
and they don't know what to do. And for that case, he gave us quite a lot of petrol, but we, so we try, we got in at 11 o'clock in the evening or something. And then he had a driver put in there and we were traveling the whole night and all day. And about two o'clock or three o'clock, we start seeing the Italian boat. It was huge. You can see it from miles away. And when I see it from now, here they can see you very very far away yeah they know exactly where you are they can see you and they just finding the best place or the best time to come and rescue we didn't know that didn't know that so we start to make um, noise we start to make we start to uh, take our tops off um, Mm. wave in the air so they can see us yeah but and the boat was going crazy it was going from side to side, side yeah. to side, side to side. And everyone was shouting, panicking. And we were the Coast Guard was getting close to us, which is very lucky thinking about it now. And all of a sudden, our boat was just smashed really? to the water. Like everything is just upside down. And people were splashing around, grabbing to each other, grabbing towards something. People sinking straight away. Imagining it now, it's just like they put you, they give you this life jacket sometimes as well. It doesn't work. It just makes you sink. <laughs> like it's pointless. You pay two hundred dollars for them, yeah. But it's it doesn't really work. I don't yeah. know how the hell they make it. Yeah. But it makes you go straight down. Like I said, they they can see you from very far away and they know exactly what's happening. So they came with a speedboat, um, big speed. Uh, they were quite big, and they were picking people one by one, one by one. It was a lot of people. And they had, I don't know, not more than six or seven speedboats, but they were doing their best to take everyone out. And they managed to take a lot of people out, rescued, um, actually life and sound. A lot of people have sank and drunk a lot of water, uh, unconscious, but they, they got a lot of people out. They took everyone out, but everyone survived which was amazing. It was a miracle. To think about it now, it was Mm. a miracle. Because how can they... I don't understand how they did it. Mm. I really don't. Because thinking about it now, they don't even care about it now. Yeah. Like they see it sinking and they just feed it. Yeah, like seeing the stories of, you know, boats being found. You, It's awful, but I would not be surprised if they've kind of you know the recent things on the channel where they're essentially saying if you see it if you're seen helping then you're in prison it, <laughs> there's people dying how can you not help it, like, it's that's completely what I understand. inhumane but they were so good they were absolutely fucked up afterwards they mm. were um but they they saved everyone and um, we got into the big boat to start giving CPRs and everything to everyone that was there. Wow. They were amazing. Um, then we got into the boat and people were just like cheering, happy, relief. People actually was the, like, we thought we were gone because yeah, of as soon as you got into the water, that's it. When you saw the Italian boat, did you think instantly that they were going to help or did you think that they could potentially, because, you know, you hear stories of people being sent back and all of this? Because we travelled 
very far out from Libya. Mm-hmm. Um, we thought it was them, and they will they will help us. Yeah, there was we were really sure about that uh, they will help us, but we made the silly decision showing that thinking that they can't see us. Right. And if we thought that like, oh, they can see us from very far away, they will come and rescue us. That that wouldn't even happen in the first place, but Mm. we didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Because they were trying to, they told us then, it's like, we we saw you from very far away. Like, you don't need to do all that. Stay still. (laughs) Yeah. Stay still. And then we come rescue. It's a big boat. We can't move it that fast. Yeah, yeah. And... We didn't get it, so but we were very happy, static that everyone is saved, and they they stayed there for a little while, and then they saved another boat that came, but they they probably got told by the smuggler not to do anything, gone a lot of advice, they just stayed still, right, and they got saved as well, and then the boat just took us to Italy, and then we arrived in Italy after. Then, yeah, we travelled all day, all night, and then we arrived in Italy in the morning. And then when we arrived in Italy, I was like, that's it, we're done. I just need to call my mom yeah. and let her know that I'm, I'm alive. Yeah. And so they start separating the people that have arrived. So if you're overage, you go to Milan. If you're underage, you go somewhere, they take you. I, don't, I can't even remember the word, the place. But it was by the sea, so it must have been Sicily or somewhere mm. around there. But so then I got separated from all the people that I came with because they were all overage. I was underage. I tried to convince them that I was overage, but obviously... Was, <laughs> <laughs> they were like, this is a 14-year-old. <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't work. So me and one, one other boy... We got taken um, to other place, mm. and they caught us in actually nice place. Yeah, and we had like nice shower and stuff there, but it was like accommodation thing, so it wasn't just for us. It mm. was for other refugees that were there as well. Yeah. When we got there, we found about two or three Eritrean boys and from different countries as well, and we stayed there for like two days or something. And then we start to speak to them and stuff, and they were like, do not give you fingerprints in here. Okay. And then we were like, what? Why? Yeah. And they were like, well, you don't get your papers quickly. You don't study. You can't work because you don't get your papers. You have to wait a very long time, especially because you're teenagers. And you're going to wait forever and ever to get your papers. And it's like, what even is a paper? Yeah. Like, why do you need a paper to do all that? And it's like, it's the rules. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You have to get them. So why would not giving your fingerprints speed up the process? So if you don't go, uh, especially in Italy, a lot of refugee, because Italy is the first place that the refugee land into, yeah. Italy have large amount of um, refugee yeah and to process all that it takes forever and ever to get yeah. your papers and if you don't give your fingerprint in Italy you can go to other places and, oh uh, okay so rather than registering as landing in Italy you can go somewhere else yeah I see and so one of my friends that I came with he was like okay my brother is in Germany so I'll go to him and I was like what do I supposed to go there 
and so the other boys were saying like okay we're going to france to go to uh, uk and i was like okay i'll come with you because i don't have yeah anywhere to go and if you're saying this is what's happening in italy then i'll try with you first. yeah i went with them we went to rome first and then for rome to get to france was another big journey yeah not realizing that is it so we tried to go from uh, rome to france you get in a train got sent back you get a train get sent back because you don't have a ticket or you don't have some kind of something your passport or anything get sent back so after trying for a very long time i was like it's not gonna work i'm just gonna try to go to germany and Mm -hmm. that's it so i got in a a train got to germany and as soon as i landed in the train station i found a a friend of mine sister no way yeah yeah (laughs) it was crazy yes she was working there and she was like, oh, a lot of people, I was, I, yeah, a lot of people just left to France. You can go with them. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And I said goodbye. I said hi and goodbye to her there. Yeah. And just got into that train and we got into the train and then all of a sudden we just got to France. Without, and then when were we about to reach um, France, the last stop or something, mm. and the train uh, inspector came and he was checking for train tickets and stuff we didn't have a train ticket mm. and but we didn't sit together so one person sits here one person sits there blah, blah, blah. Mm. so we don't see as a group and then if they see you they take you out anyway so i stuck with one family uh, next to me and she was very helpful she didn't say anything mm. he thought i was with her and just let us go and wow. two of my friends that got out from that train i saw but they ran away from it anyway so they probably got in yeah but i didn't see them after that and then i got to france and a lot of people were going to calais mm-hmm. and it was the place then i arrived in calais and i was like what is this yeah it was like a whole camp just outside the little city it was a massive camp. Yeah. And I was like, what is people doing? I, I did not get it. Yeah. It was, they were living in a small tent in a mud. And it was just mud. I did, when I see it first, it gives me the flashback that the, the camp that I saw the first time in Ethiopia. And I was like, what is, what is the really? difference? I took yeah. all this journey thing yeah, in right. here and then I'm still in the same place. Right. And then when you start to speak to people there, they have the same problem. They have given everything to the, the country that they want to be in, but they have no life. For example, I spoke to a lot of people in, they have landed in Germany, Belgium, Holland. They give their fingerprint. They want to stay there. They want to be, they set, they want to settle there, but they take so long for the papers to come and, and they can be able to work. They try to do anything. Yeah. So a lot of people came that kind of come to Cali to go to the UK and thinking that they would get their papers quickly and stuff. So the UK is not the first choice. Yeah. To include in that. Yeah. Um, it was not to anyone, ref- any refugee that, that come to the UK, I don't think the UK will be their destination. Mm-hmm. It will be the last destination to come. Right. 
like it will be the last choice that's thinking like okay let's try yeah. UK and see what happens but then when you go there you actually I tried for a week or so the amount of guards and fences and things that they put from the and the board is mad uh, you never seen in any country from f when you go from France to from from Germany to France you just go in yeah like nothing is there and when you go from Holland to anywhere you yeah, just yeah. go in but why is it so fucking difficult to go from France to UK yeah they put about 20 fences the height of God knows how high yeah you have to climb it and you have to jump in you have to about 20 of them in a row so people can't go in when I think about it now, like, why is it so, yeah, like, why do they make it like that? Why do they don't want to help people? But then we found a way to go into the train station and stuff after trying for a very long time. And it was Saturday evening. Oh, and then I was trying for two, three weeks before that. And then I was keep sending wow. back, keep sending. They, they and that found. was trying to leave Calais. Yeah. Right. You get into the train, sometimes it takes you to a different city in France. <laughs> <laughs> fuck. Yeah. And you're like, fuck's sake, you come back. And then sometimes it takes you to Belgium, you come back. And then it takes you somewhere, you come back. And it's like, fuck. Yeah. Or sometimes when you get into the train, they have um, the guard dogs and stuff. They take you out from the train. They mm. take you back to Calais and stuff like that. Then it was Saturday evening. I was like, this is my last day. If mm. I don't get in today, that's it. I'm not even yeah. going to look that way. Yeah. And um, it, we were three people. I parked everything because I was not coming back to Calais. Yeah. If I didn't get into UK that night, I'm going to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So I parked everything and then had my backpack and everything. We put it in a bush that we remember. I can remember this now. Um, so if we come back, we're going to get our stuff and go. Yeah. I didn't have anything on, so we tried to cross and it was in the night. Start raining and stuff. So all the security were not really out. They were in the van. Mm -hmm. So, but they were driving around like. Mm -hmm. so and this have, is around the train tracks. Yeah. So they have this gap, so it fits cars and then you have a gap and it was like that. So before yeah. you even get into the train station, you have to cross all these obstacles to be able to get to the train station. And then after the train station, there's a whole other mm -hmm. process. So we, and then we jumped in, jumped in and got to the place. And then when my last um, uh, fence, they come out very, all of a sudden, they just put the light on. I didn't see them at all. And then I jumped into the river, stayed into the goal. And then since they left, I jumped out again, got, jumped the last fence. I got under the train very quickly. Under the train, in what way? So this is the like so this is the train station, and then I I was under the train. So wow! I don't get seen. Right. So like under the platform. Yeah. Like under, under the, the platform. You yeah. know, you have those little gaps, and sometimes yeah, yeah. The, I was there, so I don't get found. To be honest, and that in that moment, I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. Uh, the rush in like the things that was getting me was like. Just need to get away yeah. from the police. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. even thinking that I, um, I have to go into the UK. Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking. Yeah. I was just, okay, I, I don't want the police to find me. Mm -hmm. That's my whole thing. So 
And then from trying for a very long time, you hear that when the train is about to move, it makes quite loud noise. And as soon as you hear that, you have to be so active and so quick to jump out from where you are to get into that train. Right. So I was so ready. So the train started to move a little bit and it makes noise and then start to move. So you have to be really quick. I jumped out from under it start moving i jumped out and then i hold to the metal because you have i don't know if you've seen the um, trains that come from Calais to the uk but like when they have the cars in them right yeah yeah because it's like the, the lorries and stuff is it like the Eurostar tunnel yeah, train yeah, yeah yeah so when they get in there's this like crisscross metals and stuff right like, so yeah. you don't jump in straight away and then i was in a good place but once the train start moving yeah, yeah. But I got it in, I jumped straight in and got under the lorry very quickly. And then I was trying to hide there, and there was a police there, and then, but they didn't see me. And then I started to move, and I saw the policewoman there, and she saw me, but she didn't say anything either. Oh, bless her. Which is very good. I, yeah. I don't know if it's a um, bad thing to say now for them. No, uh, I mean, yeah, I hope there's people doing that. <laughs> I hope there's more. I hope there's many, many, many yeah. more. So we got into that tunnel. Um, they didn't stop it. I don't know if they saw me getting in or anything, but they didn't stop it. So we got into that tunnel. Didn't realize how fucking loud it was. I didn't have anything. I was yeah. just in a tunnel trying to cover my ears. It was so loud for about 30, 35 minutes or 40 minutes, more like that. And just fucking... Um, England when I got into England I jumped I got out from the under the lorry I went at the top of the lorry so that they can't see me but then because you hear the so many stories that when the uh, the UK police find you they sent you back right and stuff like that so you do your best to just run away from them mm-hmm. and um, so a lot of people just running around and stuff cars coming out and it was getting very busy so I was in the top of the lorry don't know what to do and then when the lorry comes out it goes in the top like in a kind of hill right and I was just holding it on top of it and some of the police from down there saw it and they saw they saw me up there as well and they rushed it and they stopped the train and they were like calm down calm down it's fine like just like they gave me a ladder and everything but I don't want them to catch yeah. me so I jumped out the side and I'd done my knee there. Really? And yeah. I was just limping around and then they got me anyway. They were so nice to me. They, to everyone that were there, they were just so calm. Yeah. And they were like, they gave me a blanket and stuff. They took my my whole clothes because I was proper wet when I went into that river. And they gave me very nice blue jumper, massive flip flops. <laughs> <laughs> and they gave me a very small looking porridge. And I didn't know what it was. So I didn't even eat it. <laughs> but I was completely knackered. So I just went to sleep for a little bit. And then they came, woke me up. And they were start asking a lot of questions. Start giving my fingerprints and stuff. I did, had no idea what was happening. It was so much that I was so tired. So much things yeah, happening. of course. And so they start asking me questions. I was like, I don't speak English. I don't know what you're saying. Yeah. Like, so they got a translator. So she was translating to me, so they were asking me the questions. They're like, 
how do you come here? Why do you come here? Blah blah blah. And I thought I don't know, just just came in. And she was like, okay, so they giving you a choice where you want to go. So do you want to go with the sharing a young um, people sharing house or with the family? And I was like, I've lost my family. Yeah. Um, I'm not gonna get them back very quickly. And if I go to a sharing young teenager sharing household, it's gonna be a problem. It's it's not gonna be fun. So I was like, I'm gonna try to feel and fit into English family. I actually I didn't know it was it's gonna be English family right. when the translator was um, translating to me. She made it sound that I was going to air train family. Right. And I was like, sweet. So, yeah, great. <laughs> right. So I lo- yeah, I lost my family. So yeah. if I can be become family with this new Eritrean family, I would love that. And there was not much explanation going on after that. So I chose a family and mom and dad, um, Jazz's mom and dad, they got a phone call. They said it's got 14 years old boy. They want him and stuff like that. And they were like, yeah, great. We want him. They put me in a taxi without a social worker, without any wow. supervisor yeah. or anything to explain what's happening to the family. And they just dumped me in front of the house. And we, he knocked, actually, he knocked. And Jazz was the first person to meet me. She jumped and gave me a massive hug. <laughs> it, and I didn't expect it because I was expecting a, an Eritrean family. Yeah. And, but everyone was just there, very happy, greeting me, speaking English to me from right, <laughs> left, center. I was like... I don't know what you're saying, like, I, but I was so confused and I remember, I still remember dad went to the supermarket, got like a lot of Eritrean recipe for oh. the traditional um, tevidoro, traditional <laughs> dish. And they made such an effort to welcome me and made me feel at home. And then I felt straight away, I felt like, okay, uh, this is yeah. where I want to be. Like, this is just exactly what I want to be and then I stayed there and mom says sometimes to me like you're still sleeping with your whole clothes yeah um, not taking anything off yeah because for the past year and I didn't have a steady place to uh, stay and I'm ready to move any time any moment yeah of course I'm ready to go so my mind didn't settle down for a long time and then they start to make mom start making me comfortable. The whole family was there, just doing everything they can to make you uh, feel comfortable and stuff. And I start to be comfortable very quickly. And after that, then the whole social workers and stuff came in, introduced me, and then um, they were asking me like, "Do you want to stay in this family or do you want to go somewhere else?" And it's totally up to you. It's like, no way I'm going to move <laughs> from here. Um, I'm happy in here. I want to stay in here. And they were like, great. So, and they put me in that place. And I went to school a few months later on. Yeah. I, I started going to school. And the school back at home and the school in here is completely different. Really? Yeah, it's just 
no comparison. What, what, what would you say are the main differences? So in our, so back at home, you have um, a full, like about 30, 30 something, 40 students in one room, and then you have one teacher. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the teacher comes in, everyone is silent, listen, and just everything is, is like disciplined. Um, and when I came here, it was like about 10, 15 in one class, max, mm. not even 15 sometimes, mm. but less than 10. When the teacher comes in, there was no, they don't, they don't listen at all. Yeah. Like some of the girls, I remember they were doing their makeup and stuff in the middle of the class and they weren't listening at all. And I found that so hard to adapt. Right. And I was like, is this actually school? Because also I can imagine you fought so hard to be somewhere where you can learn and where you can have the privilege to be in a safe classroom where you're learning things. And I can imagine just the like shell shock of people having no idea how lucky they are because they're kids and you should have been able to be in a situation where you don't even know how lucky you are. You know, that's, that's what childhood is about. It's about being able to be naive. It's about being able to, you know, kind of take that as a given. But I can imagine that was so hard to adapt to just being like, look what I've been through to get. I was baffled. Like Mm. I want to learn. I want to study. I want, I want to learn specifically. I want to learn English as much as I can fitting in and stuff like that. I could not learn in that. Um, environment but then you get used to it and yeah. then everyone's just like it is what it is you have to do they give you homework you have to do homework blah blah, blah. and then you have to slowly adapt the way mm. they teach in the UK but for me at first yeah I did not get it at all um, even though I was just sitting there listening and stuff like that and they have a lot of teachers that actually coming in help them with lot of the teachers that are explaining um we, don't, we didn't have that you have one teacher you have to listen to him and then if you don't get it you don't get it yeah that's not like yeah just go home and study it but in here you actually have a lot of help and support with your learning to do yeah. well and i got a very nice teacher she helped me a lot with in my english spelling um the way i speak and stuff like that it, I couldn't say a word when I got in here. Yeah. Like, I learned it mostly, mostly from mom when I was at home. Yeah. Everything at home was labelled. For example, all the veggies, everything yeah. in the fridge and stuff was labelled. So when I know where, where it was, I take it off. Mm. And same in the school, she, she helped me a lot. And, and then started to get to uh, settle with the students. And then I remember they used to ask me, like, how, how long are you going to be here? Like, when are you going back home? And I was like, what? This is hard. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, oh, you, we thought you were on holiday. Like, <laughs> Only if you know. <laughs> yeah. Only if you know where I've been. Yeah. And, and how did you then find that experience of, I can imagine it's at that stage with what you'd been through, I can imagine you're very different from other people your age because of the you know, because of the trauma and the what you've been through. And as you say, this is people who are kids being kids. Yeah. They and I can no imagine idea. that was very hard to it deal w- with. It was very hard for me. Um, I was trying to ignore it, most of it. Mm-hmm. Because when you ask them where even Calais is, yeah. they have no idea. Yeah. 
they haven't even been to London. Yeah. So for me to know that, it set me back because I was, I was expecting very high. I was expecting to, for them to actually know a lot of stuff, but they actually don't have no clue. They don't even know the, ref the word refugee. Um, so, and then I was like, okay, yeah. I need to set back because I, I, I've realized this is just kids. I, they have yeah. no idea. And you should have been able to have no idea. Of course, I mean, adults, I think, is a different thing. Mm. You know, people need to educate themselves on the world around them, the refugee crisis, all of these things. I wish you'd have had the opportunity to not know. Like, you shouldn't have I had wish, to know. Yeah. I wish, I wish as well. I wish I, could, I just had a childhood that mm. I could just be free and happy not knowing anything but the thing is you have the opportunity and the resources to know so much in here like you can just google anything and it will tell you everything if you want to know or you can speak to someone if you want to know you can learn so much from just speaking to someone or just googling about it but they rather just make fun and joke about it yeah. uh, and Think like they don't know, they don't want to know. And um, a lot of people are really ig ignorant about, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to refugee. Yeah. They used to make some kind of joke saying, like, oh, he's going to take our job. Oh, he's going to, like, oh, he's going to take in my seat now. Oh, bloody lie. God. But when I realized that, that they don't really know, I mm. set myself back and realized that it's like, you can make as much jokes as you want, yeah. and I don't care. Yeah. I live my life in peace, and I'm happy in here. Yeah. And if you're not happy, it's your problem. Yeah. And, but then, of course, there are whole, whole other things that got involved as well with the racism and stuff. I had no yeah. idea. And when, like, so we had, we were two uh, black kids in the whole school. Wow. Just two. Wow. And... They called him uh, the, uh, the N-word in there, and I had no idea what it meant. So I wrote it down in my hand. I went to mom and was like, what does this word mean? And she was like, how do I explain this to you? Yeah. I don't know how to explain mm. it to you. She spoke to Jazz and stuff about it, and she was like, shall we just let him not know about it? Mm. But then they told me about it and stuff like that. Then that's when I realized it's actually a difference yeah. because I never thought uh, like a color difference was the thing in here and I had to adapt the whole thing the whole package when I got here because I yeah. had no um, experience or anything or knowledge about anything what the UK culture was or the European culture of anything so I had to learn everything from scratch and yeah, I, I'm very grateful to have the, the family to actually teach me from the base yeah. and to, um, to what I know now, which is I'm grateful for. Yeah. And what are your, what are your dreams now? What do you want to, what do you want to do? What do you want to become? What does your kind of future look like? Well, my um, future dream was to be able to study as much as I can mm -hmm. and um, have as much knowledge as I can and uh, uh, become a mechanic because I really like working physically mm -hmm. and uh, be active 
um, like working, doing things with my hands and stuff like that. So I was like, okay, I want to be a mechanic and stuff like that. And so I started doing mechanic and I done my level two, stuff like Amazing. that. Then um, obviously my brother, my younger brother just came to Libya. He's in the same situation that I was in. Mm -hmm. And that brought me back a little bit. I had to... Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com stop um, um, going to college and studying so I had to work and be able to support him um, but yeah my goal in the future will be as soon as I get my brother to the safe place I will go back to my thing and do my own thing as well so hopefully we'll be soon well thank you so much for sharing your story honestly I mean I've been completely transfixed I'm just so grateful for you for being able to come here and talk to me so openly in kind of sharing your story. I can't imagine how hard it is to talk about. I can't even come close to imagining how tough it must have been to go through. And I, yeah, can't wait to see you become a mechanic and live your dreams as, you know, every person should be able to. So yeah. thank you so much. Thank you.